Welcome to the Mind Says Art Podcast. I recently interviewed Brian Green, a hypnotherapist that I've worked with for about a year and a half, and he's such a wealth of information that I figured I had to bring him on the podcast. We recorded a little over an hour's worth of content, but I'm going to break it up into a few different parts and different topics. This is a recorded phone call, so you got to bear with the quality a little bit, but the content that Brian brings to the table is awesome. So today's topic is about grief, whether it's something you're dealing with right now or you have dealt with in the past or you will deal with in the future. Grief is a pivotal part of life, and knowing how to navigate it smoothly is a huge impact on our quality of life. So there's a difference between a habit and an addiction. For instance, some children will, say, bite their nails. And they develop a habit biting their nails, but then they develop into adults. They still bite their nails, but they don't need to anymore. And those kind of habits are accessible to hypnotic treatment quite rapidly, rapidly compared to anything else I know of. Whereas when your lifestyle has become, I'm a dependent person and I'm dependent on crutches, whether it's alcohol, cigarettes, food, sex, gambling, I take away one crutch. Now I'm a person who needs a crutch, so I'm going to find another one. Right. I think an interesting example of that as well, a few sessions ago, I had a friend who was dealing with some grief, and we kind of went through a few of the concepts that you'd use to assist someone in the process of, of grieving and, and working through. And you mentioned that oftentimes people will use grief as a crutch. They feel like they are holding on to the person through their grief, right? And so they almost don't want to release it, but you had some good concepts on that that I appreciated. Uh, yeah, I have. I don't like to work with people with grief like in the first six, nine months because the emotions are very raw and the surface emotions, there's a rhythm and a time to them releasing the pain. But when people don't recover fully from it, which is quite a lot of people, they bury like the stub. And I found they hold on for certain reasons. One being, I'm holding on to the pain. It feels like I'm holding on to the person and therefore I don't feel the full loss or the feelings behind the loss, like emptiness. And I've also discovered grief is a learning process. We learn about mortality and life by grieving over losing somebody we really love. So they hold on to the pain under the, some kind of deep illusion that they're holding on to the person. And another one I've come across is people, there's a, a kind of idea in our society that the more you grieve, the more it shows you love the person. So they can't let themselves be happy because then it means like I didn't really care that much about them. It's completely false, of course. But in order to appear like they care more, they hold on to the pain more. Now, those are the two main ones I've uncovered. There are probably others. And some of them come up individually in the individual grief release process. And sometimes people have had that grief bottled up inside them, sometimes for 10, 15 years. And I release it like in 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Bottled up grief doesn't cause specific symptoms, but it just adds power to all the other difficulties. It's just part of the load, makes the load heavier. Though any individual can develop a specific symptom from block grief. You know, human beings are so unique. There's general kind of principles and rules, but there's infinite variations because, you know, no two people have the same fingerprints, let alone psychological makeup, which is much more complicated than your fingerprints. So grief release is a speciality of mine. And I discovered there's a guy, he's deceased now, but he was out on the East Coast, Gerald Klein. And he had evolved an almost identical process to mine, separate from me. But it is derived from an inter inner interaction process that came from 
Gestalt therapy, one part talking to an empty chair or talking to the dead person in this case, which both of us studied under Gil Boyne. So he followed down the same pathway as me and got to the same place with grief. And I say that because if two people discover the same thing, it increases the chance that it's true. Right. Yeah, I like that you mentioned how people will hold on to grief because it feels like they care more, or it appears maybe even to others that they care more if they're sadder for longer. It's interesting, you know, we've talked a little bit about the handful of friends of mine who passed away in their early 20s. And, you know, one of the main concepts that I came across in talking to friends who were going through the same experience were that, you know, they, they felt as if they needed to be sad and that they should be sad and that that was the right action. But when you really broke it down and said, you know, how would the person who had passed away want you to feel in this moment? Or flip it around, if you had passed away, how would you want me to feel? What would you want me to do? And without fail, you know, the answer to that is to be happy, to go live your life more fully, to do things in their memory that, that cherish their life. And I think that, you know, it's an important concept that needs to be considered, especially as someone is going through grief, because that can really help to flip your perspective on it to say, you know what, my job is not to be sad that this person is gone. It's normal and healthy to be, if that's the case. But, you know, your, your ability to find beauty is what the person probably really needs. That's what I meant about the raw emotions at the beginning. You know, there is a sadness, but sadness leads us to crying to relieve the sadness. But if you just relieve the sadness that you've lost the person, which is largely self-centered, but that's just the way life is. You know, most of us, we're going to, I'm going to miss you. I'm missing you. I'm losing you. Yeah. We're sad for ourselves, actually. And, but after that, if the sadness is irresolvable and persistent, which I can tell when I ask people that question in my intake, anybody or anything, because a pet, a long-term pet, to somebody can be almost like losing a relative. Some people say it shouldn't be like that, but the fact is, it is like that. And I deal with what is, not what it should be. When the person talks about it, if there's no kind of emotion coming up, I know that they've resolved it. But if their voice begins to crack a bit or a tear comes to their eye, I know the wound is still not healed. And so once in the first months you cry about a lot of it, you know, and you release it, and it's not only society, it's people proving to themselves that they cared. I have to prove to myself that I care by being sad. Oh, that's another thing. People are scared. If I don't hold on to the grief, I will forget about them. And I always answer that with, you'll remember the good times, you know, and occasionally on a sad autumn day, we have our scars, you might get a little tear, but you don't have to keep the wound, you know. It can heal over and just be one of our many scars in life. And you will remember the good stuff, but you don't have to continue to grieve because the good stuff is stored in your being, you know? The good memories of the good times and their good qualities or the love that you shared or the fun that you shared and so on, that is retained, but you don't have to hold on to the sadness because the other stuff is just as indelible because that's another reason. That's the third major reason. I'm scared I'll forget them if I stop being sad about it, you know? And yes, and I use that as a tool, especially with parents or siblings. Would they want you to be sad or would they want you to be happy? You know, and people know, well, if they love me, they'd want me to be happy. And therefore, when they do that, those interactions in their mind, they can release whatever pain is left or emptiness or sadness and then associate that person with good memories. So when they think of them, they remember the good things 
which comes from neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, which Milton Erickson, the psychiatrist, hypnotherapist that founded a lot of modern therapy, it's using a resource. They have the, the resources, the happy memories. So you attach their recollection to the happy memories, and then in future when they think about the person, they think about the happiness, not the loss. It's like redirecting the deep inner attention, and the person can come out of it. One lady came to me to stop smoking, but she had grief about an abortion. Abortions and miscarriages are often a lot of grief, sometimes guilt as well, but also a lot of grief. And that's what came out in the session, and she went out with a friend that night, and he said to her, that look of pain that's always been in the back of your eyes is gone. So it was visible to her friend that she'd been changed, you know, in a measurable way. So that's what we're working with today. Hope you enjoyed that excerpt from the hypnotherapist, Brian Green. If you'd like to work with Brian or find out more information about him, you can find him at www.mindmagic123.com. Those are numerals, one, two, three. His email is mindmagic123 at yahoo.com. And his phone number is 323-851-7208. I'll also include that info down in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in with Brian and I today. This is the Mindset Art Podcast.